each of us who are involved in public media has a role to play. And I think through the work of the Public Media Alliance and the Global Task Force that I chair, what we are trying to do is by joining forces and by speaking as one voice to, to strengthen the commitment across our collective countries uh, so that we can, in our own domestic sphere, lobby and advocate for greater uh, safety for our journalists. But by having that larger collective voice, we have a greater chance of shifting the conversation, I believe. Media freedom is under threat. Physical and digital attacks on journalists, impunity for the perpetrators, the internet a new and powerful tool to curb access to information, legal and digital harassment used by governments to intimidate. In the previous episode, we examined the state of media freedom and how there are now more threats to journalists and media organisations than ever before. In this episode, we look at what's being done about it. Effectively, what the Media Freedom Coalition did and does is try to embarrass other governments when abuses of media freedom happens. It's an effort which is uniting historic foes. It's one subject where we all agree. That's not always the case between public and private media, but in the, on this one, everybody came forward. But with media freedom increasingly in decline around the world, it's evident more is still needed. We can make changes but we need the society to be in our side, on the side of being able to exercise the right to freedom of expression. I'm Harry Locke, and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. I was a journalist myself in the past, and I can tell you 20 years ago, you would have never listened to a podcast like this one, or read an article in a newspaper, or anything related to this issue. Silvia Chocarro is the Global Head of Protection for Article 19. We heard from her in the previous episode. There was just no information about threats against media freedom and attacks against journalists. And there was also in this idea that journalists or media, they don't talk about themselves. We are not the news. But yes, we are the news sometimes. And we have also to talk about it. And so... I think there is more information than ever and people are more aware than ever that this is happening. One of her criticisms about efforts to improve media freedom in the past has been the absence of the media industry itself dutifully and substantially reporting on the attacks that they themselves are facing. This responsibility instead has long come down to civil society groups such as Article 19 who have been working to raise the profile of attacks to media freedom. So what is it that civil society groups actually do? When it comes to the protection of journalists, for example, we work on prevention, protection of prosecution. Prevention is enabling a safe environment for journalists to do their job freely and safely. This first P is fundamental because it's the work that is going to allow for attacks not to happen again in the future. It's creating the structures that are going to enable that environment. Just for example, last week, the Human Rights Council, which is the body of the United Nations that is monitoring and providing recommendations and where the states commit to protect human rights, there was a resolution on the safety of journalists. We did 
a lot of advocacy and we were able to support the resolution in a way that now the resolution includes commitments by states. The states have committed in that resolution to address, for example, legal harassment against journalists. The other side of that work is, okay, but those international standards are useless if they are not effectively implemented at the national level, right? We do work at the national level to put pressure on the states or we work with, with the parliaments, with the governments, to make sure that those standards are implemented at the national level, either, either through legislation or through public policies. Then we have the second protection. It's about minimizing the impact of the attacks. So in there, what we do is, for example, we document attacks against journalists. We also do protection trainings for journalists. And in some cases, we do provide uh, some legal or emergency support for, for them. And then the three piece prosecution and remedy. You have to hold accountable to those that are actually attacking journalists, and that is prosecution and remedy. And that is a circle because obviously if you if people are not prosecuted, there is impunity, which means oh, I can continue to attack journalists because in any case, nothing is happening to me. She believes that greater awareness of the issue is leading to more collective action. Sometimes we focus very much in the negative, right? And you see all these, for example, criticism against media or journalists that might be happening online. It is true, it is happening. But at the same time, there has been incredible movements of solidarity towards media and journalists that have been under attack. When Jan Kuciak was killed in Slovakia, people went to the streets to denounce that. Or for example, where Carmen Aristegui, for example, who is a journalist in Mexico and her radio program was under threat, her own audience went out in front of her to, to show her solid, their solidarity to her. One media organisation which is looking to foster that sense of solidarity amongst the media community itself is CBC Radio Canada, the country's public service broadcaster. In Canada, journalists are being targeted online. These attacks are absolutely terrifying in that it's it, we're not just talking you know aggressive disagreeable i don't like you type of things it's it's rape threats it's racial insults threats against our journalists families and the reality is is that uh, women and our racialized uh, journalists are disproportionately targeted the increase of online attacks uh, has a amplification uh, impact Catherine Tate is the president and CEO of CBC Radio Canada. The current situation in Canada has led to the creation of the hashtag not okay say a say campaign. It's an industry-wide call for action against the abuse and harassment levied against journalists. Well, how it started was I had read the UNESCO 2020 report on the increasing violence against journalists and this phenomenon of online attacks. And the, you know, the notion that somehow online attacks are less violent or somehow that they don't have the same impact than a physical attack, when we now know that there are very significant knock-on effects and it does translate into real-world attacks as well. So 
I had read that report and, and what really struck me was the facts around uh, women and racialized journalists and the concern that an increasing number of young journalists are leaving the profession because of the vile environment. They're choosing not to be in this vocation. And that, of course, is extremely alarming because we are like all public media, we're dedicated to diversity of voices, diversity of opinion, and to lose the voices of, of women and racialized journalists is, is absolutely devastating. So we started really that kind of provoked a conversation internally. Obviously, the hashtag not okay, and that in French it's hashtag CAC. The idea there was to really galvanize a conversation around what is going on and to initially engage with private news organizations in Canada and to really come together. And I have to say, it's one subject where we all agree. You know, that, that's not always the case between public and private media, but in the, on this one, everybody came forward. We held a two-day forum with journalists and specialists in the area talking about online harm. We launched a, a survey within Canada to really get a measure of how serious the problem is. And I think the number was over 72% of the journalists that responded to that survey said that they had been the victims of online attacks of, of some sort. We also published a newsroom guide for managing online harm within our organizations. And that was, again, a very collaborative effort from editors and uh, managers across all the uh, news organizations to talk about how do you support your journalists before they might be exposed to attacks and then after. And that has been, I, I would say, it's comforting that our journalists know that we're taking the subject seriously. Have we solved the problem? No. So the next piece of work really is about how do we actually stop the online harm? And that's the bigger, thornier uh, challenge that lies ahead. But you have seen some some positive improvements or, or some changes, at least, I guess, organizationally, but, but with the journalists as well? Journalists are a very peculiar breed in the sense that they, you know, journalism has a kind of a thick skinned, uh, stiff upper lip legacy. And what we're really saying is it's okay to talk about the suffering. And so internally, we have more support mechanisms. We're actually looking at whether or not our benefits, our health benefits can cover some of the support that's required. So yes, all of that is positive, but the real work is how do we get public security agencies, the police, to recognize the problem. And that's a much bigger uh, challenge because in our country, in Canada, the actual policing occurs at, at the municipal and provincial level. So we got challenges around that, though we are in dialogue with the police now, with RCMP and public security officials to try to bring attention to the issue. So for example, if you have been the target of an online attack, you, the journalist, would have to call the police yourself and file the complaint. We want to be able to, as a corporation, file it, that complaint on behalf of our journalists so that we're not forcing journalists to go into a police station and, quite frankly, oftentimes be dismissed 
or even belittled because an, an online attack is not a physical attack. So we are really working hard on improving the awareness amongst the policing authorities on the very clear, significant harm that these online attacks are causing. So that's point number one. The other piece of the of the equation is, of course, working on the social platforms themselves. And again, at the most senior level, myself and some of my colleagues have been meeting with the platforms, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, to try to actually force their hand in living up to their promise. Each one of the social platforms does actually have policies around online hate. The problem is their thresholds uh, for determining what is actual harm are not sufficiently implemented, or by the time they remove the content, it's too late, the harm has been done. So those are the kinds of things we're working on. How much has the campaign been, have you managed to sort of have those conversations and I guess raise the awareness on a, on a greater level through the fact that this isn't CBC acting by itself, but as you say, you've managed to partner up with Canadian private media as well. So has that elevated the seriousness and the urgency of the campaign itself? Oh, absolutely. And and I'm very, very pleased that we were able to extend the conversation with the launch of what is called the Brussels Declaration, which is a call for journalist safety and media freedom, unveiled at the Public Broadcasters International Conference in Brussels last year. So that was an extremely important effort in the sense that we were able to get over 30 countries to sign on to the principle of journalistic safety standards and this work that we're trying to do. There is no doubt that this is a global phenomenon. We've seen increasing number of journalists being killed, and that's just one part of the story. The online attacks are fast and furious, and they are equally harmful to the health and well-being of people who are really on the front lines for democracy. Let's just be clear. The purpose of online harm is to intimidate journalists and to try to force them to shut up. And that is coming from players who do not support the fundamental role of journalists holding truth to power. CBC Radio Canada's leadership on this issue of journalist safety, both national and international, is an excellent demonstration of the role that media organizations can play in being an advocate for themselves. As Silvia Chocarro says, it's a role which organizations have historically shirked. But media organizations and civil society can't do it by themselves. They also need engagement from tech giants and social media platforms. This comes with its own complications. As you said, this is going to take buy-in not just from public-private media, but also from uh, social media firms themselves. And I guess very topical at the moment would be the ownership of these um, these tech giants. So how much is that a concern to you in terms of this campaign and progressing when these takeovers happen and all of a sudden it seems like these social media giants, the different directions that they're taking might actually expose journalists to even greater harm. How much does that concern you? 
it, it's a, it's a, the deepest concern, and it's not just who owns the platform. I would say it's the foundational principles of the platforms, which are to increase traffic for commercial purpose. I had the pleasure of attending a talk by Francis uh, Hagen, you know, renowned Facebook whistleblower here in, in Ottawa. And she was uh, very clear. People who say that silencing the social media platforms is a threat to freedom of expression or the liberty of expression are utterly ignoring the fact that our freedom of expression has already been compromised by the algorithms that Facebook and others have been using. So before you even turn on the, the platform, there has been a curatorial effort to select content that generates more eyeballs and more attention is inflammatory in order to earn more commercial revenue for that platform. And so if you're in the business of amplifying hate, messages that are misleading or disinformation, if that's your business model. We have as a society, a serious problem on our hands. And as Francis Hagen talked about it, this isn't just, oh, too bad we're getting disinformation. This is disrupting democracies across the planet. So all of us, again, not just public media, but all media and all people engaged in supporting foundational principles of democracy should be concerned about not just the ownership of the platforms, but their underlying business model. As we explored in the previous episode, the internet is a new front line when it comes to censoring independent public interest media. But there have been legislative efforts to regulate and counteract some of the issues we see stemming from the internet. Online harm, mis- and disinformation, all valid issues. The problem is, as Jessica White from Freedom House explains, this sort of legislation can have inadvertent consequences. They might have actually legitimate concerns uh, for addressing issues like disinformation or cybercrime, but those can also result in collateral forms of censorship. So we might also see essentially free countries almost carelessly fragmenting the internet to try to address issues like disinformation and cybercrimes, but the collateral damage might also be significant. So how can governments strike the right balance when it comes to legislation? Any legislation needs to ensure proper safeguards and needs to take into account any collateral effects that may be happening. But for example, in the EU, I think there's some promising moves and we'll see how it actually gets rolled out in practice at harmonising protections for media pluralism and media freedom through the, the Media Freedom Act. So I think that's a good example But really, I think one piece of legislation will not be a silver bullet to resolve all the problems on the internet. And I think it's really about creating a more resilient ecosystem where all actors have a part to play. And whether that's through regulation to protect human rights and media freedom online, or multilateral collaboration, or further investment in civil society, I think the courts have a role to play in striking down problematic clauses and problematic laws. Tech companies can also play, of course, an important role in stepping in and protecting media freedom and uh, digital rights when, when at most need. And civil society, I think, are fundamental in really ensuring that there is that level of oversight and that they can play a watchdog role So I think it's really about that ecosystem 
of players working together to ensure that any kind of measure that's put into place does more, more good than harm. So we are seeing legislative action. The European Media Freedom Act, which Jessica mentions, was put forward by the European Commission earlier this year. Amongst other things, that's looking at ensuring editorial independence, transparency of ownership and for public media, secure and independent funding. And there is another government-led initiative looking to promote media freedom. It's called the Media Freedom Coalition. My name's Martin Scott. I'm a lecturer in media and international development at the University of East Anglia. There are lots of international campaigns designed to promote media freedom. There's funds, there's work inside the UN, but what there isn't is a collection of governments outside the big multilateral institutions, outside the UN, that are advocating for media freedom. What's unique about it is it's now over 50 different countries, which is a lot for a coalition like this. These countries are represented at the highest political level, so primarily foreign ministers. And that's its big USP, its big advantage, is it has high-level political clout from lots of different countries. The Media Freedom Coalition, or MFC, was established in 2019 by the UK government's then Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. But so far, the MFC has perhaps not been as successful as it was initially hoped. In the Media Freedom Conference held in Estonia earlier this year, Martin presented to the delegates on why that might be. I spoke with Martin about some of the challenges facing the MFC and what positive impact on media freedom it could still have. What Jeremy Hunt wanted to do was to bring together foreign ministers to lobby other governments to what he repeatedly referred to as raise the cost of imprisoning journalists, raise the cost so that effectively what the Media Freedom Coalition did and does is try to embarrass other governments when abuses of media freedom happen. So I guess that apart from bringing together lots of governments who signed a pledge in order to join the Media Freedom Coalition, they signed a pledge to say we will uphold media freedom. They also, the most obvious public thing that they do is publish statements condemning abuses of media freedom. That's mostly what what it looks like, is a collection of now nearly 30 public statements condemning abuses of media freedom in Yemen, Uganda, the Philippines, Venezuela, Russia, China, etc. So there are 50 states that have signed up, but, but would it be fair to say that not all of those 50 states themselves would have the best record when it comes to media freedom? And does that compromise the coalition in its sort of integrity? Yeah, so this is, this is one of the long-standing issues, is do you let in members who don't have the best media freedom records in order to incentivize them to improve? Or is it a carrot and stick? Or do you wait till they improve? Does it reduce the legitimacy of the coalition? I think the coalition has taken a kind of uh, midway approach. There are members inside the coalition who don't have very good media freedom records, but have promised to and are showing signs of improvement. Improvement. However, probably the biggest criticism of the Media Freedom Coalition is what happens to those countries that you do let in who show signs of improvement as a kind of incentive to change when perhaps they have a, a change of governments and they no longer support media freedom. If we look at the positives, where are they you know, making real strides? I think you could characterise the success of the Media Freedom Coalition in its potential. It has the capacity to do good things. It's got powerful governments in it. 
a lot of powerful governments in it. It's got a relatively diverse range of governments in it who are making a reasonable number of quite strongly worded statements about other powerful countries. And so so on the face of it, that's that's good. And also, if you want a convening point to kind of lobby these governments to improve their press freedoms, you've got them all in one room. Maybe I just say a few things about how it's not delivering. Despite the fact that they are writing quite strong statements about important media freedom issues, these statements get very, very little publicity. They're often published uh, late after the incident has happened. They're often not signed by as many members as perhaps they should be. And no one knows about them. They're not publicised. There is no effective communication strategy. This is kind of documented in our research. Apart from the initial conference, just how poorly publicised it is. So a critical statement condemning abuses of media freedom is just not heard. So does it have any impact if no one hears? Does that matter if the statements are going direct to the the minister at Fault's office? And do you know if that's happening? Because ultimately, press coverage is great. But actually, the right way of doing it is actually to make sure that the minister or that the government at fault here, the perpetrators of these abuses of media freedom are the ones receiving it. Yeah, yeah, spot on. It depends what the theory of change of the Media Freedom Coalition is. States care about their reputations and that's what the Media Freedom Coalition can do. And that was what Jeremy Hunt initially thought thought the purpose of this coalition should be. It's about foreign ministers embarrassing their counterparts. So yes, you're right, you could see these statements as long as they're read by the people you want them to be read by working. Is that the function of the Media Freedom Coalition? Or is it to raise the profile of the issue of media freedom amongst the general public, in the media, amongst governments, make journalists feel supported? And I guess one of our recommendations of our report is to decide that. I think there's different views about what the purpose of the coalition is. Is it high-level statements for other politicians? Is it to strengthen the norm of media freedom in general? Is it to provide financial support? Is it to hold members accountable internally? It has massive potential to do that. If I could just make one other point, another feature of this Media Freedom Coalition was that it established a high-level legal panel of experts on media freedom. Very well-respected body of experts who've done a lot of excellent work about the mechanisms you can use to promote media freedom. Beyond making statements, you can provide visas for journalists at risk. You can uh, use sanctions. They've written these detailed reports about how exactly governments can do this. And another of our criticisms is that the response to these reports so far has been, in almost all cases, not enough. And so, so that's what I mean by theory of change. The coalition itself needs to decide how it thinks its work is promoting media freedom and then do it. You've spoken a lot about, I guess, its inherent flaws and and where it, you know, is perhaps still unsure of what it should be doing. Do you think these concerns of yours are being addressed, will be addressed? Because, I mean, what, nine months ago you published this report? They've had time to think about it and make some changes. So we made a series of quite technical recommendations about how it should work better. What's it trying to achieve? What are the criteria for being a member? How do you expel members if they should be expelled? How are you going to make sure that there is more attention to the strong public statements that you make? How do you decide which statements 
to make. There are many violations of media freedom. So how do you decide which ones to choose or which ones to make public and which ones to work behind the scenes? How do you work in country? And so we made a whole series of technical recommendations. But your question was, is it doing those things? On the outside, it doesn't look like much has changed. In the nine months since we published our reports, there have only been a handful of statements published. And again, they didn't receive very much media coverage, though they were strongly worded statements. Uh, so from the outside... With strong buy-in from states or, or sort of minimal? No. Yeah, they were strongly worded, but um, I don't have the percentage with me. But again, they weren't signed by as many member states as perhaps you'd hope. But I gather behind the scenes, the recommendations we've made are getting there. They are getting there. And the, I guess the biggest success has been, rather than being run inside essentially the UK Foreign Office, the Media Freedom Coalition now has its own secretariat run by the Thomson Reuters Foundation. This is a good idea. It means that it finally has capacity to hire someone who can do the social media and the communication strategy, that can make sure that everyone's on board, that can plan the next conference, that can encourage more states to sign it, that can decide on the theory of change. So I think we're more optimistic than we were because by the time of the next conference, I would strongly hope it has a better communication strategy. It's worked out how it imagines it is going to have change and uh, it'll hopefully have expelled members or at least made a statement about members who are no longer respecting media freedom. Since Martin and I spoke, this latter issue has been partly dealt with. Afghanistan, which joined the MFC in January 2020 before the Taliban took over, has now been removed as a member. In a statement, the MFC said, The situation of media freedom in Afghanistan is, unfortunately, no longer in line with the global pledge. Indeed, the current state of affairs is one of grave concern. What we see from these examples addressed in this podcast is how the efforts going into improving media freedom and tackling head-on the threats it's facing are being addressed at all levels media organisations recognising the seriousness of the issue and giving it the space it deserves, governments calling out abuses by their counterparts and acting to give media legislative protections, or civil society continuing to monitor, raise awareness and hold perpetrators to account. And that ecosystem is what's needed if the decline of media freedom is to be arrested. In the final episode of this short series on media freedom, I'll be hosting a conversation with three public media leaders, including Catherine Tate, about what they're doing to speak out for media freedom globally. Thanks very much to my guests, Catherine Tate, Martin Scott, Sylvia Chicaro, and Jessica White. Thanks to Tom Brazier, Rachel Still, and Lucas Thompson for the music. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with friends and colleagues. You can follow the Public Media Alliance on Twitter at Public Media PMA or Facebook and LinkedIn at Public Media Alliance. Head to our website to register for our newsletter where we share our latest updates as well as global headlines related to the media industry. We'll be back with the final episode of the year next month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>